This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm Phil Kirk Bride, and today joined by Dave Prentice, Sam Carroll, and Adam Jones as fat of all the major talking points at Goodison Park, of course. As we know by now, it's a very different podcast than usual, but we are doing our best to bring you uh, insight, opinion, bit of colour and discussion. And hopefully half an hour or so we'll provide some entertainment in the lockdown. Um, on the agenda today, uh, yesterday was 12 months on from when the Blues thumped Manchester United 4-0 at Goodison under Marco Silva, perhaps the high point of the Marco Silva race. So we're getting the chap's thoughts on the 12 months that have been since and did we think we'd be pre-lockdown, of course, in the position we are with the change of manager, etc. And as you will no doubt have seen our website, we've been giving the players rated the season so far. Uh, so I've got a couple on my list for today for the lads to talk about. I'll give the lads the, the numbers that have been given out and, and see if uh, if that's a fair reflection. But um, Sam, as, as you mentioned it to me, uh, yes, I think you can start us off. Um, the weather was almost like it is now, gloriously sunny. Goodison was packed, uh, United were the visitors, and they were absolutely swatted aside 4 0. Is that your, or is that the high point of, of the silver rain? Did, did it go downhill from yeah, I think, there? Yeah, it went, went downhill and fast, I think, didn't it? I think that was really the moment where it just seemed like everything had come together. Uh, you know, I'm kind of, I think I was in office that day, I was watching it on telly, and, you know, obviously United aren't the United that they used to be, but, you know, you still always expect a, a tight game, maybe similar to what we had against them at Goodison uh, this season. But then, you know, we absolutely took them apart. And I think no matter what Manchester is the team you beat, if you, if you beat them 4-0, it's, it's some occasion, it's some day. And, you know, it was, a, it was a great performance from everyone. And, you know, Romel Lukaku was on the end of a few of a few years. And every kind of felt good. And it, it felt right, I think, if anyone would have even dared suggest then that there was still things to work on, that... You know that we'd obviously go on to lose a Drissagana Gay and and everything that's happened in maybe the last six to eight months. You you would have thought you were you were mad, but to, to think about that day and the weather and 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 the feeling around the stadium to, to not only Marco Silva being sacked, but to where we are as a as a country now. It's been it's been some twelve months, but yeah, definitely that point to the Marco Silva ring. Definitely the point to think that gave so much optimism, especially going in to that summer transfer window and you know signing players that. Maybe we, we all hadn't don't think anyone had watched lots and lots of Moise Keane. I don't think any had watched lots and lots of any of, of Gene Philippe Jabaman, but you know, it, it was performances like that coupled with the, the win over Arsenal, the win over Chelsea, even the draw against Liverpool that that made you think maybe maybe they could have done special build on the silver. It wasn't to be and it's it's almost kind of strange to look back on on that Manchester United game now and and to see where we are today. Adam, was that the point of Marco's reign and, and why didn't we capitalise on that? Uh, I think it certainly was the high point of Marco's reign and I think Sam's right in the fact that you know it came after that Liverpool game, the win over Chelsea, the win over Arsenal as well. There was a real distinct feeling of good start, especially the end of last season that, you know, who could stop us? You know, who could come, who could come to Goodison and beat us? And, you know, that's really... From from the position that Silver found himself in in you know say January maybe start February, you know to be able to create that from then until the end of the season that was you know really really promising and you know 
maybe the end of the season came at the wrong time for him because we just built up that momentum. We had, you know, winner Burnley was our last home game last season, wasn't it? So, you know, the momentum was so high for us. And I know we managed to continue it a little bit into the start of this season, but, you know, the win over Watford, the win over Wolves, they weren't really played with the same sort of and intensity we had uh, in those games, you know, against, well, especially Manchester United last season. And it's so strange, like, I look back at the highlights of that Manchester United game and, you know, the second goal in particular, you know, it was a manual corner breaking out from the back. Just a guy runs us half up the pitch, gives it to Sigurdsson, and Sigurdsson just pings in a, a shot from about 25, 30 yards. Like, unfortunately, you know, obviously we had Guy taken out of the equation this season, but let's put another one of our midfielders in that situation. Would we see that goal this season, especially under Silva? You know, it, it's it's really strange that how how quickly, as Sam said, it went downhill. So I think maybe just the end of the season came at the wrong time for so he seems to build up that momentum. End of the season just kind of knocked it a little bit. Obviously, we lost Guy, we lost Zuma as well, and we didn't bring in another centre back to kind of replace Zuma, uh, especially for the first couple of months of the season. So it's just a really, really strange time. But yeah, that Manchester United game—it's so strange to look back on it and think, you know, how how much optimism there was around the ground. You know, you don't beat Manchester United four 0 every season. You know, the fact that we have done that was you know really good, but. Yeah, it, it is a bit of a shame, really, that that ended up being the high point of Silver's time. Prano, um, both Sam and Adam have mentioned one player uh, in that conversation of that game, and that was somebody on the score, but running the midfield, Idris, the sure. guy. Um, look, many problems in the 12 months since that game, of course, and, and, and various reasons why things have, have you know, reached a bit where Mark loses his job. But how big a hole has been left by Guy? In hindsight, you'd have to say an enormous hole. I mean, um, I saw the goals on social media today and very, very pleasantly surprised at the quality of the uh, the moves involved. Uh, two of the goals were like major breaks from one end of the pitch to the other, but they were breaks at pace with quality, you know, so with real, you know, sort of high-class passing involved. It just it surprised me a little because, you know, it was the kind of football we didn't really see uh, that much of at the start of this season. Um, yeah, in hindsight, you can say that Garner Gate was a huge part of that. I think we underestimated him, uh, you know, so, well, I certainly did, you know, accepted the destructive part of the game that he brought to, to Everton's uh, squad, but probably underestimated the constructive part of the game that he also had. But what also jumped out at me, you know, so absolutely glaringly from those highlights, was Gilfie Sigurdsson. How influential he was that day. Um, you know, apart from the goal that Adam's just talked about, uh, his part in the fourth goal for Theo Walcott, where he showed a bit of pace, a bit of, oh, like, you know, last day Kevin Heedy, the kind of role that Sheedy played, you know, in that Bayern Munich goal we see all the time. Uh, a little bit reminiscent of that. And we just haven't seen, you know, so Sigurdsson have that kind of influence again this season. Is that again, that's the fact that a gay that was taken out of the equation, he had to you know, sort of play a slightly different role. I'm not so sure. But yeah, certainly in hindsight, you know, so losing that one individual did make a huge difference. Um, Zuma, as Adam mentioned, it was also a shame that we lost it equally, you know, so Mason Hagate's sudden emergence sort of offset that a little bit. Um, but yeah, Gay was a player that wasn't really replaced, and the players that were introduced in the summer didn't really settle all quickly. We never really that kind of a 
discernible pattern either. Um, there was almost like a suggestion that there was a you know a team growing towards the end of last season. Um, apart from that win against United, there was a you know solid draw at Palace and Spurs, the defeat of Burnley, who were a very offside team, but Everton did it really comprehensively that night. Um, and then it's almost like you know, so Silva tried to change the way the team was playing at the start of the season, and it just never really melded, never really you know sort of settled very quickly. And you really got the sense that any kind of momentum was developing at all this season. I mean, it was the defeat of Villa on the Friday night, you know, so which like knocked us back very, very quickly. And it just seemed like, you know, we were struggling. We were trying to run before we could walk and there was just no sign of any pattern at all this season. So, yeah, you know, that probably was the high point, unfortunately. You know, so we left Goodison with a spring in our step thinking, wow, you know, the future looks bright. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Um, just just staying with Guy, Sam, in, and it's, very easy in hindsight to look back and, and question these things, but at the time, did you have any concerns over the fee that we were we we'd negotiated twenty nine million pounds with PSG to, to sell um, an influential midfielder? Yeah, I think it was a difficult one at the time, wasn't it? Because it was quite clear that Gay wanted to go and you know go and play for for Paris Saint Germain and, and and be involved in the Champions League, and he, he gave us so much honour. Loyal service there, you know. I remember saying at the time it was it was interesting. He was one of the only Everton players that that I can remember for someone my age, where Everton were losing our best player, but they were lo- they were leaving on kind of good names. Everyone not in that kind of small small club way, but just in a way of he'd given us so much. The fee for a twenty nine year old seemed more than decent kind of thing at the mm. time, and and it was an opportunity to play in the Champions League. That he wouldn't. Immediately get Everton, but you know now obviously in, in hindsight being twenty twenty, I, I just don't think we got the scope of how important Jusagana Gay was and kind of how how much we'd miss him and how how unique that that kind of all the player him and Kande uh, have, have kind of have almost made their own. So I'd say at the time I was just more kind of thinking that it was something that we had to had to replace and, and fast it was going to be crucial to replace him. Because you know there was that much kind of faith, you know, in, in Marcel. Not that there's not now, but you know, Marcel and, and Marco had such a kind of positive first transfer window that you know Jabamin just kind of seemed like he'd be able to hit the ground running and replace him. And, and Gay would be happy because he'd got his big move, kind of you know, at a stage of your career when you you don't usually uh, get that. So yeah, I think it almost seems it seems strange now looking back that everyone wished him well. Everyone's still happy to do well at PSG. You know, I know he was having a really good season before it was suspended. But now that you think back, you probably think he, he to Everton anyway. He was he was probably double actually actually got from when you when you're back at games like that and you just see how much we kind of at times. There's just been so many games this season where I just think if you put a Drisagan again in, it could have been so different for for not only Everton but Marco Silva as well. I think what we also, uh, you mentioned it there, Sam, that, you know, so Gabamin, that could have been, you know, so the, the ready-made replacements, he could have been the player that, you know, could arguably have saved Silver's skin. We just don't know. You know, so we only saw him for like fleetingly at Crystal Palace and then one game at Goodison Park before he was ruled out of the equation entirely. Who knows, he could have been a guy that, you know, so replaced Garner Gay. I know he didn't look the same type of player, you know, so physically, but, you know, so he could have been the player that came in and, you know, so made that transition seamless. Unfortunately, we'll never know. Mm. Adam, there's, there's been a bit of an update about Gabamin actually this week, hasn't there? Uh, yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's on the road to recovery. He's uh, nearing 
what would be like outside training if it was if it was in any sort of normal circumstances he'd be uh, training with a ball so he's doing some like sport specific training this week uh, continuing his rehab from surgery it's hard to, it's hard to think how hard this would be you know for not only for the player but for the medical staff as well to try and talk him through everything that he's doing just you know via like a video chat like we're doing now mm. so uh, it, it must be a really strange situation for him but you know it's it's really good to see him you know, on the road to recovery and you know like i think i've said on the podcast a few times before like maybe maybe even if this season does come back i'd maybe just say to him look sit out this season after fresh season kick on you know hopefully can be that replacement for guy because guy was Guy, guy was just such a new, unique player in that in that midfield three. He was such an engine. Like every, he would be absolutely everywhere on pitch, and just you know come back but going forward for us as well. And you know, with Gabamon being out, you know, I know we did sign the likes of Delph and San Gomez permanently, but we didn't have that sort of engine room in the middle three anymore. So ultimately, Gilfieldson's you know, as Preno said, just did need to change this season. You know, maybe that did affect his form and maybe that's what what led us down the path that we find now but you know, I think it's Gabamon can find us the way to fix and you know, hopefully he can be that replacement for the guy that we so desperately need. I think the so, thing with go on Sam, go on. So I think the, the thing with Gabamon yesterday as well in the in the article that Adam wrote that I found quite interesting is that I think sometimes we forget these players at their day just just like like us aren't they just just humans and it was mentioned yesterday that you know he's got a a young kid on the way and a baby on the way and you kind of think don't you like a young man in his early 20s coming to England for the first time might, might not have had a, a a great grasp on the language now he's having a baby in the middle of of the coronavirus crisis you know what are what are kind of periods in in Jabamon's life it's been and we're all kind of sitting here just thinking well he's got to be the replacement for this again it's tough but I generally think he could be the fit I know a lot of fans hate that oh he'll be like a new sign and phrase but He's one of the only ones I can remember that he literally will be, won't he? You know, he's played <laughs> one so from from start, and he's going to come back and hopefully be that whole new player. But at the same time, as Adam's saying, it's, it's just so interesting to see how the club must be managing them. Not only kind of, I know the interview yesterday, you know, the club are kind of watching them do his movements and and giving them kind of routines and stuff. But it was also interesting when he said, you know, when you get to know Gene. He all he also opens up a lot as well, so it seems like he's kind of happy to to talk his own feelings and his own emotions, which must be just just as important at, at, at this point as any of the kind of physical work he's doing. And I, I really think that and really hope as well that when you know we can go back to physical training, whether that's how they do Germany at the moment, when lads go back maybe in small groups and, and apart, that a couple of the, the older, more senior players can take Jabamon under the wing because it's it's a period of transition for him on and off the pitch but as I'm saying if, if he gets that run next season and he is like that new sign he is like that uh, Adrissa Garnagay replacement then what a headache that would lift for, for Brands and Ancelotti because you know we've got to sign a central midfielder anyway I think I think it's going to be probably one of the priorities but you know it, it would help if he also you know because he, he was showing promising signs wasn't he and I think he grew into that Palace game towards the end and then for all accounts, had a decent game against Watford. So, yeah, there's a lot of the kind of positions needed in the summer, I think, and, and Bam and kind of hitting the ground running would, would definitely obviate one of them problems. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.
Prano, Sam makes a really good point about, you know, we, we can't forget the psychological element of, of Gabamin's recovery. But just, just pick on Adam's uh, point there. He, he thinks that he should just focus on the start of next season, whenever that could be, and, 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 and aiming for that. But psychologically, is it not vital for Gabamin to be, to be targeting one remaining nine games this season, if and when they happen? I think it all depends on timing, really, doesn't it? You've just got to, you know, sort of be guided by the sports scientists and by, you know, sort of the recovery rate uh, to the injury. And he's fully fit. And you know, so when he's 100% physically ready, by all means, you know, sort of pitch him into a match and, and see how he responds. But, yeah, I'd, I'd probably overlooked as well, you know, sort of the extent, uh, you know, psychological impact. He was of being in the dressing room with those players. You know, he's been in well, on two occasions. Mm. The rest of the time, he's been sat, you know, so in um, the little rooms at Finch Farm that they use uh, for players who are injured, you know, so working on his fitness zone. He's missed out on all that, you know, so assimilation, you know, so with the squad, all the joking, all the, you know, so the messing about, you know, so the, the stuff that the players really enjoy. Uh, that'll be so tough for the player at the moment, not being able to mix with each other. In, where I live here, you, you, you see them every now and then, like sort of wandering around the streets, and you know, so they do look like little boys lost. Um, <laughs> you know, so, Leighton late Baines has been doing this like mad, um, you know, sort of fitness uh, where you can actually pit yourself against other sports people around the country. And uh, apparently, he's doing magnificently well, you know, so he's like about you know, so eighth or ninth in the entire country. But you do you see other players, you know, so basically wandering around on their own. And it's quite unusual, you know, so you don't normally see players often around there because, you know, they, they live behind these bloody gated mansions and walls and things. And, you know, so you very rarely clap eyes on them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think uh, a lot of it, they're not going to get tested for selfies while they're out these days. <laughs> so they're more happy to, like, you know, sort of poke their heads, you know, sort of over the parapet. But equally, you know, so they're at a loose end, you know, so they can't mix with people, they can't mix with their teammates. And so that is going to have an effect, you know, psychologically. Certainly for a player like Gabamin, who's like not being able to enjoy that for the whole time he's been in England. And yeah, you forget his youth as well. You know, so mm -hmm. he's a very, very young man who's, uh, like Sam's just said, you know, so sort of bringing up or about to bring up a young family as well. It must be a very, very difficult period, you know, so sort of to adapt to psychologically. And, you know, fair play to him for, you know, sort of getting through it as well as he has done so far. But everybody can't wait just to be in a dressing room mixing with players. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, as soon as he's and as soon as he's available, he needs to be, you know, sort of part of that as quickly as possible. Yeah, you make a good point there, Brennan, because play, players, you know, like us all, but players particularly are very much creatures of habit, aren't they? Structured days. And although they will be training to, you know, to tables and stuff, there inevitably is more downtime and less of what they would, you know, usually do with the downtime. Hence why... You see maybe some of them, as you say, walking around looking lost. <laughs> That's it as well. I mean, what helps foster a successful team is the bonding and the team spirit and all the stuff that, you know, sort of goes together with that. Uh, I've been reading a couple of pieces recently about, uh, you know, successful pre-season tours that Everton have been on and, um, you know, how that helped, you know, breed successful seasons. Because something indefinable happens, like sorts of groups of players when, when they mix together. And, you know, Groups of men, you know, so aren't necessarily all going to get on together. You're going to have different personalities, you know, sort of that group. But being together, you know, so in a certain situation allows you to develop relationships and to develop this, like, sort of team spirit, which is so, so important. Um, you know, you look at the teams that are successful, you know, so in this country, Manchester City, Liverpool, all very, very, you know, sort of dis disparate, you know, sort of individuals within those groups. 
Yet the team spirit is incredible. You know, you, everyone talks about the quality Man City have got, but you look at how hard they work during matches. They work in, you know, incredibly well, you know, sort of with each other. And that is built, you know, sort of on the training grounds. And, you know, so Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp are very, very clever at that, at helping to foster that team spirit. And you get the impression Carlo Ancelotti is very, very good at that as well. I mean, there was a feature that we put on the site uh, yesterday, John Terry, uh, talking about, uh, you know, so how Ancelotti revealed the Chelsea players had just been sacked at Goodison Park. Um, 2011, was it? And then they were on the other team bus on the way back. And so they all said, right, come on, we're taking it out. We're all going out in London. We're going to have a great night out. And they did. And uh, Terry actually said if there was any of his former managers he wanted to go for, you know, sort of an evening out with, he would choose Ancelotti. So... You get the impression Ancelotti would be very good at helping to develop and foster that team spirit when he's given the opportunity to do so. Mm. It's frustrating as hell for him as well, being able to, you know, sit at home and have his, you know, sort of hour-long walk along Hall Road front. (laughs) (laughs) So what he'd like to do, you know, sort of with the players and not being able to do so. It's an immensely frustrating period for everybody. And we all understand, you know, so why these restrictions are in place and we all understand, you know, so why it's so important that people do adhere to these government guidelines. But gosh, it must it must be very frustrating for them as much as it is for the rest of us. Mm, indeed, um, Gabamin, of course, as Sam says, will feel like a new signing in that respect uh, when he returns to the team. Um, speaking of potential new signings, Adam, um, you know it's been no secret for a few months now, um, and we've reported on it several times that the club are interested in Lille defender Gabriel, um, twenty-two Brazilian. Do we really know much about him, though? There seems to be anybody who asks seems to just sort of go, <laughs> "Yeah, it looks all right to me." <laughs> well, I suppose if you if, if you're not somebody who watches French football a lot, then perhaps you're not going to know all that much about them. I mean, I've watched them in the Champions League a few times this season. I think he played all of Lille's Champions League games that they had this season. You know, we look pretty solid in those games, I and mean, even though obviously Lille went off to the group stages, but you know. I'm not an avid watcher of league mm. and football, so I can't say that I've seen him a lot of times. But, you know, I think you've just got to trust in what Ancelotti and Brands are identifying. You know, he, he ticks all the boxes on paper, doesn't he? You know, he's the right age age range. He looks like he's got the right attributes. You know, he, I think if we add, like, a back four, like, like a four centre-back options of him, Colgate, Mina and Michael Keane, and we're suddenly looking really, really strong in that position. Uh, do, do, do we think? Um, sorry, just interrupt you. Do, you, do we think that, that when when any club, in particular, club, are linked with a Brazilian or even a South American centre half, it immediately causes some cause for nervousness? Do you, or do you, and do you think? And do you think that, that that actually the perception of Brazilian defenders, you know, stereotypically and historically, is actually now needs to be changed because you know the game's moved on and and and. Brazil aren't, you know, all Brazilian defenders aren't as mavericks as, as David Luiz. What do we uh, think? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do agree. I think the game has moved on in a way because, you know, we're, we're, I think what springs out to me in this scenario is like we, when you, whenever you see Mason Holgate talk about his form in Everton and how he's developed under Ancelotti, he always kind of brings up how, how well he brings the ball out from the back and how well, how, how much. Uh, influence Ancelotti puts on you know, players being able to bring the ball out from the back and you know for all of you know in the past you know your David Luiz etc have been you know maybe defensively culpable they've been fantastic at bringing the ball out from the back so maybe Brazil were just a little bit ahead of the curve essentially in, in 
developing these type of defenders who are just as good with the ball at their feet as they are stopping other players with the ball at their feet. And, you know, there's no suggestion that Gabriel would be this type of defender. He would have a mistake. You know, it, it really depends on the type of player rather than the nationality, whether somebody's going to have a mistake in them or not. But, yeah, fingers fingers crossed he'll just be he'll be as capable defensively as he will be going forward. Sam, in, in anything you've picked up or read about, about Gabriel, can you glean anything other than uh, the the raw stats that we've all seen? No, not not too much. I mean, I have had a couple of YouTube uh, YouTube looksies, Adam, but I've been yeah. burnt before watching Umar the Ass <laughs> the night we signed him, telling me dad that we'd signed a 30 goal a season. So, Umar, to be fair, did look boss on YouTube. Like he had it all, he had pace power, could finish from anywhere, but I think I think you know, I think I think many people listening, many and and, and I certainly did 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 like you watched watched the Nias YouTube compilation, and I think maybe you kind of heart rules your head at the time because you're just thinking, oh pace, look at the goals, yeah, it could be it could be an absolute bargain. But if you watch it re- retrospectively, you can kind of see the yeah, he doesn't yeah, know what's going to happen just, with the ball, yeah. the defenders don't yeah. know what's going to happen. <laughs> And, and, and it, was Russia, it was Russia. Aiden McGee, he looked good in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we, we were saying, there's a few, Evan, me and Adam were saying the other day, if you watch that Sunderland Till I Die series too, Ryan Oviedo looks like the best left-back in the world. Just assists, crosses, like, he's just brilliant. But obviously then you remember he's playing for Sunderland in League in One. League but, One, yeah. You know, Gabriel, I mean, Everton, you look back the last time we signed a... Well, not the last time we got Mina now, but you know Funes Mori, we we got we got Burns with with him as well. But I'm not sure. I think look, looking from from the brief things I've, I've seen about him and read about him, you know he's obviously highly rated. He looks like you know he's he's well built and he doesn't look like your kind of David Luiz style um, defender either. So you know it does seem like Everton are, are keen on him. You know you get these kind of rumours, don't you? Which which feel different. It does feel like there's real genuine interest that. And I think it's a position that just needs sorting out, isn't it? We've had too too much, really, of, of you know, we've signed Keane and hasn't quite hit the levels of consistency or confidence we maybe needed. I mean, I, I personally like Mina, but, you know, I think he'd been left out for the last couple of games under Carlo Ancelotti. So we just need that. You know, you look, it's horrible to say it, but you just look at how much, obviously, whole different ball game in terms of uh, the, the money they paid, but... Liverpool sign Virgil van Dijk and you just look at the influence he's had on their not just defence but the whole team and how they operate do you know what I mean and just you need these days that you need at least a spine I think to be to be competing in the in the top six of the Premier League and, and that's what we almost need to sign this summer so you know I think Gabriel if, if Ancelotti's happy and Brands is happy then I think Evertonians will be happy as well and it, it would be nice to, to kind of go against the grain of how you haven't usually operate and get a deal done nice and early, you know, and not be messing around later on, you know, and at least know that we kind of had them there ready to start the new season, but it's Everton and you, you don't know what's going to happen, do you? Preno, you know, you know, look, we're not able to uh, to offer any particularly great insight on Gabriel as a player because we've not really seen him a great deal, but certainly one of the key and very raw attributes is he's left-footed and there aren't many left-footers in this squad. No, that's a good point. Uh, you know what? What you tend to do when you see you know the players linked with you know your club like that is look who else is uh, is chasing and which other scouts have targeted him. And you know if the reports we're reading are correct, Chelsea, Arsenal, and Napoli were all very very interested uh, in signing this player. 
so that suggests that he does have you know so a certain level amongst you know so European football. Um, Van Dijk obviously is the absolute elite level benchmark, and you know that's why you've got to pay seventy five million quid to get players like that. Uh, Everton have got a business model now uh, where they want to spend, you know, around the, the 20, 25 million mark on younger players. I think he's 22, is he? 21, yeah. 22, Gabriel, uh, who will then, you know, sort of develop and be basically, you know, sort of worth more to you, you know, so as his career progresses. Um, so he fits that, you know, so that model um, very, very well. I think he played every minute of, uh, of Lille's Champions League campaign uh, and played very, very well. So he ticks, you know, so lots and lots of boxes. Everton appears to have done their due diligence. And, you know, so if they can get a deal uh, over the line, it looks like it'll be a very, very useful acquisition to have. What you want with your, your centre-back, so what, what I want is you want, you want stability and solidity and consistency. And that's largely what we haven't had in the uh, in the central defenders, you know, so that we've had at the club. Yerry Mina has looked great on occasion, but has had these dips. Michael Keane has been a bit of a roller coaster, to be honest. You know, so lots of ups and downs. Mason Holgate's arguably has been the most consistent of the lot over the last uh, six months or so. Uh, but you know, he's also you know so looked decent bringing the ball forward, and, and you would hope that you know so Gabriel will do that. But you just want consistency. You want a player mm-hmm. that can come in and basically produce it week in and week out. And uh, you're never going to know whether he's capable of doing that until he comes into the Premier League, which is a very, very different league to leagues throughout Europe, and see how he settles in. But, you know, so he does tick an awful lot of boxes. The club seems to have, uh, you know, sort of scouted him very, very effectively. And, you know, fingers crossed, yeah, you know, it can be a player that we can get over the line. And as, you know, the guys mentioned, get done sooner rather than later. We say sooner, we have no idea whatsoever when <laughs> the season's going to actually start or next season's going to start. But yeah, the sooner he's on board, the sooner he can be training on his own down Fulby Beach. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, final part of today's pod, uh, as we promised. Um, we've only probably got time to do one of these. Um, as you will have seen, we've been doing uh, season so far ratings for each of the Everton squad, and that's ongoing. Uh, but of course, we started with Jordan Pickford, uh, and after a couple of the guys gave him a rating, his rating for the season so far is coming in at 6.5. Adam, is 6.5 a fair uh, reflection of Jordan Pickford's season? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I think he, he, let, let's get this out the way. He's not he's not had a fantastic season. Uh, I think everybody knows that he's made mistakes across the course of the season. But in my personal opinion, I think that those mistakes are being highlighted a little bit too much. I think on a national scale, they're obviously going to be highlighted so much because you know he's England's number one. There's a lot of pressure that comes with that role, especially you know he's quite a young goalkeeper in that role as well. So, you know, maybe that adds a little bit more pressure as well. But I think in terms of Everton as well, I think maybe his mistakes have been just... I think they've just been over-egged a little bit because, you know, a goalkeeper is just like every other position on the pitch. You can have periods of good form and bad form, but it seems that whenever Pickford has a period of bad form, people instantly like start to question his attitude or other parts of his game and... I just don't understand that. He's he's just had he's just had some periods of bad form. I think maybe the the one to look at is the Manchester United game just before the break. You know, he made mm. perhaps what we could be perceived to be a little bit of a mistake uh, in letting in Bruno Fernandez's goal. But then in the second half, he produces an absolute worldy of a save, which ends up saving us saving us a point. So I, I think with the mistakes that he's had, you know, he's he's not had a he's not had a fantastic season by any stretch, but I think I don't think he's had as, as bad a season as people are making out. And I think, you know, with the age that he is, 
as well. I think he's just got so much room to improve, and fingers crossed, he still will achieve that at Everton. Um, Sam, part of the goalkeepers' union, do you think six point five is is unfair? Don't be giving him ten now. <laughs> uh, no, as, as Adam says, I think you've got to probably admit it. And, and I know Jordan's a confident lad, but we'll probably stay, say the same. I think just a little bit like what happened last season. I thought Pickford was very good at the start of the season and at the end of the season. There was just a period in the middle where he seemingly lost his way a little bit and, and seemed to be the case again this season. And you know, he's he's just made too many mistakes. The you know, as as the way it is of a goalkeeper, a can miss a chance from ten yards out, and but if the keeper lets one through his legs, it's, it's the keeper that gets the the rollicking at the end of the game and gets all the kind of the bad press. So, you know, there's there's just been too many to kind of pick out from Pickford. But you know, I, I I'm I am still always kind of surprised by the debate about him. You know, seemingly a, a polarizing figure at the moment, and. I've still got. I think Preno is the same. We've got a lot of faith in faith in Pickford. I think he'll be the England and Everton goalkeeper for a long time to come, providing you know he cuts out those mistakes. But he's, he's a young lad, and I just generally think it's it's consistency that uh, he's, he's he's after. And hopefully this time next season, you know, because as we're talking about a centre back, you need your goalkeeper to be performing at the top of his game if you want to get in the in the top six at the moment. So. You know we're going to need Pickford to be at least a seven or an eight next season if if we want to challenge and if if he used to keep the kind of the pressure off his back both at club and and country. Prenner, a word on Pickford. Are you, are you pro Pickford? Oh, very much so. Um, but equally, I agree. I think that six point five is probably a fair you know mark. Whenever I talk about his his performances, I always try to caveat it with his age, um, how he's likely to improve. You know, so as his career progresses. And what he needs to do temperament-wise uh, and concentration-wise, you know, which he is starting to do better. Uh, and those people that are arguing that you know he should lose his England place, you know, he's not made a mistake whilst he's been the England goalkeeper. He's made a couple, you know, so certainly, you know, so during his Everton career. But equally, so is Dean Henderson. He mentions that one he left through his legs that gave Jorginho and Alden, you know, sort of winner, you know, mm. so a few months back. And Pope's made mistakes this season. Uh, it's all very easy to you know the man in possession and pick holes in his performances uh he's not played as well as he had done the previous you know so a couple of seasons he has made you know too many mistakes you know for most people's likings but they're not absolute you know so howlers people look to be you know so trying to focus too hard what was the um the game where he was like you know the newcastle match where he was you know someone freeze framed that image of him stood behind the goal line, you know, so when the ball actually, you know, so he tries to catch it, you know, so on fumbles, but I was trying to indicate that that was an error. He just made two or three absolutely incredible instinctive stops prior to that. And as a result, that's why he found himself in the back of that goal. But it's almost like the anti-Pickford brigade. Oh, no, no, look, you know, freeze frame that. That's proof, therefore, that, you know, so he's having a bad run of form at the moment. Equally, you can, you know, so find instances where he's made great saves and use them to support his case. Um, Six and a half's about right, you know, so he could have done far, far better this season, but equally, he's not as bad as people are making out. Uh, I think think stylistically, people have got an an issue or the the perception of the way he is as a goalkeeper because he perhaps isn't traditionally orthodox in his goalkeeping style. You know, he's not, you know, he's not, he's not very straightforward as a goalkeeper, is he? (laughs) 
No, I mean, I think that the issue that people have, and I have an issue with it as well, is the way he gets involved in matches all the time. Temperament-wise, goalkeepers need to be dispassionate. I know sometimes you see, I mean, Peter Schmeichel was an absolute ranter and you know, so, an erasure, you know, so during games. But normally after the event, um, people see Pickford making a save and then, you know, so bouncing around his, you know, so line, celebrating wildly and saying, you don't want to see that. You want to see you have a little bit more of a dispassionate approach, you know, so to, to your game. And, you know, the very best goalkeepers we've had at Everton have been like that. Nigel Martin was just like that. Obviously, you know, so Neville was like that. Tim Howard, to a certain degree, was like that as well. You've got to be cool and calculating. But again, earlier, he's very, very young still. He's only played, is it, two, three, four seasons of Premier League football. Uh, he's adding to his game all the time. And I genuinely believe that will come. Uh, it's something he needs to learn. And I think, you know, we have seen it better this season occasions, you know, so where he has been a little bit more switched off. But, you know, he's adding to his game all the time. He's adding to his, you know, his skill set. And that's something that he needs to add. And hopefully he will. Excellent, chaps. We'll end it there. Um, thank you very much for your company. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Remember, if you've got questions or topics you want us to get our teeth stuck into, please get in touch with us. Uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, on email. Um, uh, Friday, we're doing the 90 special. Preno and Gab Buckland will be joining me uh, on the podcast as we look at, similar to we did with the 80s, um, the, the, the building of the side that ultimately won the Cup in 95 and then what followed afterwards for the remainder of the decade. But again, as I say, any suggestions, any questions you've got for us, please get them across and we will endeavour to do our best and answer them. Chaps, thank you very much for being involved and thank you very much for listening. This has been the Royal Blue Podcast. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.